Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. We have for the last five months or so spent our time in the book of 1 Timothy and in chapters 2 and 3, important sections that have to do with the church and guidelines for public worship. But for the next two weeks, we're going to take some time off from that study and look to return to it, Lord willing, on April 16th. Today, if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. As you go about your business during the day, you might notice, as I do, the symbol of the cross everywhere you look. You can't go far without seeing one, top of a church, on a headstone, hanging on a chain around someone's neck, a tattoo on someone's arm, bumper sticker on a car. It's the universal symbol of Christianity, and with approximately 80% of the people in our country claiming to be Christians, it's a symbol we see everywhere. Unfortunately, it means a lot of different things to different people. As we pointed out before, God isn't so much looking for a Christian tattoo on your arm as He's looking for His Word engraved on your heart. As Max Lucado said, it's an odd choice if you think about it, a tool of torture embodying a movement of hope. I mean, the symbols of other faiths are much more positive, right? I mean, the Jewish have the Star of David, Islam has the Crescent Moon, Buddhists have a lotus blossom, yet it's the cross for Christianity, an instrument of execution. We wouldn't wear a tiny electric chair around our neck. We wouldn't put a hangman's noose on the wall. We wouldn't put a picture of a firing squad on a business card. It's, that, it's what we do with the cross. Many even make the sign of the cross when they pray. You know, would we make the sign of a guillotine instead of the genuflex? Would we just, you know... And so, it's an interesting and strange to even think about that, I think. Why is the cross a symbol of our faith? To find the answer, of course, we, we didn't need to look any further than the cross itself. Its design couldn't be simpler. One beam horizontal, one beam vertical. One reaches down, one reaches out. It's the intersection of both. A cross where God forgave His children without lowering His standard. That's really the simplicity of the cross, the center focus of Christianity, the death of Christ. And so, even though my plan was to continue in First Timothy this week, as it really is what we would normally do, it's really not where I felt the Lord wanted me to be. As I began to study on Monday, I just felt like I, I needed to move to something else. And so, starting on this Palm Sunday, and where our Lord came into Jerusalem to the joy and the singing of the crowd, and left it five days later to the jeers and betrayal and the scorn and the rejection of much of the same people, it might be good to look at the simplicity of my relationship to Jesus Christ and yours represented by the symbol of the cross, my salvation paid for by His death and His resurrection. And although I see the symbol of that cross everywhere, I, I continue to be conscious of the fact that churches everywhere are filled with people who are not saved. And the longer the Lord allows me to be in the ministry, the more my attention is drawn there, people in the church who are lost. There's been a number of deaths this week that have caught our attention deaths in Christian circles. A precious senior girl from LCA killed in an accident early this week, a tragic murder of little ones in Nashville along with some church staff. Even the murderer herself had attended that Christian school. Of all the people who've died, though, I think it's important to remember a couple of things, regardless of the circumstances. No one was innocent, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And although it's tragic to think about 
if they could come back, there's only really one thing they would want to ask you, no matter what the circumstances were, and that is, what have you done with Jesus? No matter what they claimed before death, after death, if they got to come back, that's the one thing that they would ask, what have you done with Jesus? And I'm always concerned about those in the church. Did they miss the message somehow? Because Audrey Hale missed it. And so the question then is, as you perhaps speak to people right here in this sanctuary, I'm sure you would hear stories of people who attended church for years and considered themselves Christians, never coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus until they heard a clear message of the gospel. And it's always interesting to me as I think about Jonathan Edwards. I've shared him with you before how for 22 years he was the pastor at the Church of Northampton, Massachusetts, and how the Holy Spirit, through his teaching, began the Great Awakening, and how he was one of the finest theologians in the history of our country, one of the best orators the American church has ever known, preaching a number of renowned sermons, the most well-known of them, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is considered the catalyst for the Great Awakening. And though he was faithful to teach the entire Word of God without exception, If you've read about Jonathan Edwards, you'll know this, that after being their pastor there for 22 years, his church voted him out. And the reason why they voted him out is because he wanted to limit the taking of communion to those who had made professions of faith in Christ. And the church considered that too extreme, and so they got rid of him. And the amazing part of that story is this, that after 22 years of some of the finest teaching the American church has ever known, he realized that he knew there were unsaved people in the church when he came, and there were still enough unsaved people 22 years later to vote him out of the church. So the question is, how does the message of the simple gospel not get across? This simple gospel message represented by the cross foundation on which we teach every other thing. And I mentioned to you this before, I based my teaching style really on Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 through 3, which says, therefore leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. If instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. There's a lot of things we could say about that passage. Just a couple of things I want to point out to you. The meaning is pretty straightforward and plain. The basic teaching about the simple gospel is the place where we start. We don't keep coming back to it over and over again. And you know if you've been here for any length of time, if the passage lends itself to a presentation of the gospel, then we present the gospel. But otherwise, we're supposed to leave behind the basic understanding and the elementary teaching about Christ, which is repentant from dead works and faith towards God and instructions about washings and lay of on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We're supposed to move past that once we've laid that foundation on into what? Maturity. And so we teach verse by verse through the Bible and we do just precisely that thing. That's our desire. The basic teaching of the simple gospel is where we start. It's not the place where we dwell. Maturity is the focus and the goal, if you will. Otherwise, everyone just, be, just stays at the very basic level of Christianity. And as the Lord allows, that's what we'll do, and that'll be my focus, and that's what we do every Sunday, as we, and in every Journey small group and every other thing that we teach. We teach for maturity. We want our people to grow, to grow in their faith and their understanding of the Lord, to go out and be equipped for good works and do them. 
There's always the concern, of course, that some might have missed the message, missed the starting point. I've attended church for a long time, maybe in the mind of some, you know, uh, that idea that everything is all right between them and God. I've been a Christian a long time. I grew up in a Christian family. Those kind of things. You listen to testimonies and people say things like that. Nothing about repentance, nothing about uh, uh, faith. Some preconceived idea that has blocked an understanding of the message of repentance and the message of the cross. But whatever the situation is, whatever that might be, it's out of a growing concern that the message has been missed somehow that we find ourselves in Romans 3 today. And as always, as I prepare for Palm Sunday and for Easter each year, and have done that for nearly 30 years, I always wonder what I can say to the church that would be new to you, some nuance, some idea that you haven't thought about before, as if that's even possible to do. And I was thinking about different ways that we look at the cross, as we said earlier, the symbol of the cross. Most of us, when we think about Calvary, we think about it from our viewpoint, the debt that was paid on our account, our unworthiness. We sang about that just a minute ago. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with recounting that on our behalf. We could look at it from Jesus' viewpoint, sin-bearing and agony and rejection. We could look at it from the viewpoint of the angels and both holy and unholy. I think we'll do that at some point. Holy angels, of course, curiosity never fully understood because they long to look into redemption. They don't understand it because they are never born again. They're holy no doubt the incongruity of the Holy One enduring the despising and the rejection of sinful men of love prompted uh, this most, what manner of love is this, this most important moment of all created history and what effect and, and how the author of life could actually die. And the unholy angels, of course, rejoicing at the point of a great defeat, they thought, bruising his heel. And then the realization three days later of Jesus bruising the head of Satan and the power of death taken away and given to the Son and all power and authority under, of, of all things under heaven and earth and under the earth, all given to Him. An interesting perspective, no doubt. But, um, and we've looked at, uh, last, last year we looked at the cross from the soldiers and from the women's perspective, the centurion, of course, and, and how he understood when Christ uttered His last words and all that happened after that. I, I think that He came to faith, and we could look at it certainly from Jesus' perspective. Uh, sin-bearing and angry and rejection and, and the perspective of the disciples, of course, and the scattering from Mary and the other women from the Jews. We could do all of that. But what I'd like to do this morning and next week, we're going to see the cross as God himself sees it. As he sees it hanging on your neck, as he sees it tattooed on your body, as he sees it on the top of a church, as he sees it on, the, on a, a headstone. How did God see the cross? When he looks at the cross, what does he see what did it mean to God? How did, the, how did the Father Himself see it? We who are born again know how it looks from our perspective. That, I mean, the hymn book in front of us is full of that, right? It's full of those things from our perspective, uh, full of those expressions. And we've sung modern hymns today, and we do often, that cause us to reflect on the cross from our perspective. And gives it, uh, Scripture gives us information about those other kinds of things. But, but how did God see it? How, how did He characterize it? How did it characterize God? How, how did it exalt God? How did it honor Him? How did it accomplish His purposes uh, and solve the great dilemma of sinful men? And, and in just our brief look at this marvelous passage, I think we'll be able to come uh, across this message of the cross very clearly, which is what I'm concerned about in the church, the only foundation on which everything else can be built. So I'd like you to look there, if you would, to Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. We're going to read down through verse 31. And we're going to take two days, this, uh, this Palm Sunday today and then next uh, Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, to do this passage. But I think when we get done, 
uh, it'll be a blessing to you. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, and this was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time that he might be, ju- that be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith And the uncircumcised through faith is one. Verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So what does the cross look like to God? What does God see when he sees the cross? I think if you could put it in a package and deliver it, Paul's carried along by the Holy Spirit to give it to us, and that does it. This awesome passage gives us a glimpse of how God sees the cross, what the death of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, uh, how God sees all of that, the blood shedding, the sacrifice that we're going to remember next week. What did God see as he looked at it? And there are a number of things that stand out from the passage, which we're going to take a look at right now. And if you're a note taker, you can just flip your bulletin over and take some notes if that's helpful to you. But I don't have a PowerPoint and I don't have numbered notes because I need you to pay attention to this. This is important. I don't want you to miss this because you're busy writing something down that needs to be written on your heart. Let's look back at verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And first of all, the cross, as God sees it, from God's perspective, he made it clear that the standard for good is not relative. The standard for good is not relative, it's absolute. Some may say, you know, wait a minute, I'm a pretty good person, you know, I'm a moral person, I go to church, all that. You're no different than a criminal. There's no distinction. Some may say, you know, I'm a good person, I help poor people, I give my money away, I'm a good provider, I take care of my family, you know, I, um, I go to church, I keep my word, you're no different than an adulterer. I'm very religious, I know there is a God, I go to church, I do everything I'm required to do to get to heaven, all of that. Um... It's very hard for people to understand this. Uh, This is a very difficult concept. That's what it says. There's no distinction. We're included too before we came to faith. Cross from God's perspective was the death that everyone who ever lived deserved. The standard of punishment applies to everyone. Because verse 22 says there's no difference. We're all bankrupt. We're all wretched. And we're all vile. And there may be relative difference in the way we appear on the surface, but the fact is that we're all in the same category. This is a big obstacle for people. And and if I had one response that really is a universal type of response over the years as I witnessed to people across their counter, across the table, there at a restaurant or whatever it is, I'm, I'm not that bad of a person. That's it. 
I'm a good person. Other people are very wicked, but I'm not a wicked person. I'm a good person. If I've heard that once, I've heard that 50 times. It's a very difficult concept to grasp. Every human being on the face of the earth comes short of the glory of God. And there be, may be well, you know, relative differences in the way we appear on the surface, but the fact is that we're all in the same category. Evil is evil and everyone's in the same boat, infinitely separated from God, and there's no way to change that situation on our own. There's no way to think about uh, you know, one being better than the other. It appears, of course, on the surface that some are far worse than others, and I think we could look at the news this week and say, well, those people are far, that person is far worse than me. But everybody's so bad that they're infinitely separated from God. And we've seen in numerous places what it means to glorify God, to recount His attributes. God's glory is His perfection, His glory, His justice, His holiness, His faithfulness. We sing songs today about that, faithful then, faithful now. Infinite qualities and attributes. Men have sinned, and so by definition of sin, have fallen short of those qualities and those attributes. And there's no righteousness that men have on their own, and no way to reach it, and no way to be right with God. The very nature of men is corrupted by Adam's sin, and each person who has ever lived has demonstrated that corruption by the rebellion against God's laws. This is a super important point, and everybody has to come to this understanding. Everyone is under a curse, and they reveal that situation on a daily basis by what they do. Even the best of us falls far short. That's man's condition from God's perspective. So God had to do something. And he did. And the cross from God's perspective, man is in need of something that he could not provide. And so as God looks at the cross, the standard for his goodness is not relative, it's absolute. And secondly, the cross from God's perspective, he made his righteousness clear. Everybody's bad, and we understand that, and then here's the standard of righteousness that God made clear. When God looks at the cross, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was, here it is, to demonstrate His righteousness. So how does that do that? I mean, how does that demonstrate God's righteousness? As God sees it, Christ dies on the cross to exhibit or disclose or assert God's righteousness. That's an essential issue. And that's always my answer back to somebody, along with taking them through, have you ever lied? Have you ever, have you ever uh, cursed God? Have you ever stolen anything? Just to make sure we, we're all on the same page, because it's always going to be yes. But the next thing you've got to make sure is clear is that if you're okay and, nobody, and you don't need anything, that why did Christ have to die? And how does, that, how does that explain and put on display God's righteousness? But the death of Jesus, according to, as Paul's carried along here, put on display for all the ages just how righteous men had to be to be right with Him. And men have always throughout the ages struggled with that issue. When you understand that God is a righteous God and you understand yourself to be a sinner, which is your first two steps when you're witnessing for someone, to someone, you have to have the bad news there. They have to understand that they're lost. They have to understand that they're sick before they realize they need medicine. You're in a very difficult position when you get to that point. And what's the question? How can I ever reconcile this relationship? How can I be right with God? How can I know God? How can I be forgiven by God? Those very questions throughout all the ages, that's have given birth to religion. 
answering those questions. And religion in every facet is an endeavor to reply to those questions. It's the cry of the heart of men to fellowship with or at least mollify whatever deity he may embrace, whatever authority he believes he's under, whatever judgment that he fears. How can I, a sinner, reconcile this relationship? What kind of God is he? How, how can I satisfy him? Is he righteous and holy and just, or is he capricious and vindictive and mean? And how can I satisfy his requirements and be right with him if he's righteous and holy and just? What do I need to do to satisfy his righteousness and his holiness and his justice? And beloved, if you've never asked that question, regardless of what you may think about yourself, if you've never asked, how can I satisfy a holy God and given the correct answer, you're not born again, no matter what you may think about yourself. Because that's the issue. A holy God above all men, all men created, and then sinned and fall short of his glory. How do I satisfy God? You're going to have to give the right report. And it's not going to be that I'm a good person and I've always gone to church and I'm a Christian. That's not it. Men have asked this question. Job and, and Bildad asked this question in Job 9 verse 2. Listen to this. This is the cry of every man's heart. In truth, I know that this is so. How can a man be right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he couldn't answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart, mighty in strength, who's defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains, they know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and, and the chambers of the south? Who does great things and wondrous works without number? Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I, couldn't, I would have to implore the mercy of the judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. He bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. And if it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? And though I'm righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I'm guiltless, he will declare me guilty. And I think you can see the same kind of question. Here's, here's the thing. At least this question had the right perspective as opposed to what we typically have. We, re we revere God as a, as a cosmic grandpa there to answer your, answer your prayer request and bail you out when you're in trouble. At least he understood the power of God, the magnitude of God, the omnipotence of God. See, He had the right perspective. He still didn't know what he was going to say. And so answers are postulated on that question, and we call them religion. And every religion besides Christianity all involve works and human achievement. How do we know we've done enough? How do we know we've satisfied God? And beyond that, how could that even happen? How would it even be possible for works done by sinful men to satisfy a holy God? They can't. It's not possible. They don't make provision for us. They don't make us right with Him. So Bildad's response to Job, what can a man do to be right with God? I don't know. And Jesus' response to Nicodemus, how can a man be saved? You're the teacher of the Jews and you don't know these things? 
And Paul's question to Jesus on the Damascus Road, what do you want me to do? Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Same question, see? The rich young ruler, what do I need to do? I've kept all these laws from my youth up, and yet he knew he was lost. And all of mankind calls out together with one voice, what do, I need, what do I need to do to be right with God? That's what you have to be asking. If you're truly born again, you've come to that point. What do I need to do to be right with God? And it's not that I've always been a Christian and I've been in church all my life and I'm a good person. But I've made some mistakes, but I'm a good person in general. Now, if in response to that course of questions put to him, what do I need to do to be right with you? God, we're just to forgive you. Someone might say, you know, God's justice is quirky and unpredictable. I mean, some sinners he forgives, others he judges, and you can't trust his righteousness, and you can't trust his justice and his holiness, because you don't know what he's going to do from one person to the next. I mean, if you catch him on a good day, things could come out fine, but who knows otherwise? But actually, we do know that God's nature is not like that. It's unchanging in any attribute, absolutely consistent. And the reason we know that is that the cross, from God's perspective, plainly demonstrates his required righteousness. Psalm 324 then answers the question, being or we are justified, that's the answer to the age-old question, we're made right with God as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Diakayuo is the verb uh, to be justified, present, passive, participle. It's the reality of the sinner. As God looks at the cross and it puts his righteousness on display, this is true, that God can act on your behalf and pronounce you righteous. And the participle means that this can be your continued reality forever, forever declared right with God. When you come to faith, God can declare you righteous. That never changes. And the bad news to a lot of religions, and Job's point that we just read, there's nothing anyone can do to to accomplish what we just read. There's nothing any person can do to satisfy God's requirements for holiness and righteousness. In Psalm 49, 7, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying to do it forever. It's not possible for you to make amends for your sin any more than it is for you to make amends for someone else's. Nothing any human being can do to settle God's justice. And so if we can't do anything, and there's nothing we personally can do, then the initiative then has to be with whom? Him. And that's why Paul's carried along to reveal the cross from God's perspective and say in Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. God presents to us righteousness. He hands us a right relationship with Him to him as a gift. And if we're going to do it, we'd have to, you know, if we're going to do it on our own, we'd have to follow Jesus' requirements. Therefore, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can you be? You cannot. And we can't do that because Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of us has become one, like one who is unclean, like a leper. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Every single good thing that you think you've done in your past, which somehow qualifies you for God's goodness, is like a filthy garment. That puts everything in the right perspective. All of us wither like a leaf, and all our iniquities like the wind take us away. So verse 23 of this passage tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's at the same starting point. Goodness and wickedness are not relative. God has a standard, and he put it on display. That's us at our best. 
trying to be right with God, no matter what, we, what work it is, it doesn't measure up to what is required. We could never be perfect, so we could never produce an achievement that satisfies God. And yet you still may think that you're a good person. That's folly. That's folly. Thinking that you're a Christian because you've always been a Christian, you were raised in a Christian home, you've come to church, and you're a good person. It's folly to think that that is what saves you. That doesn't save you. You have to ask these kind of questions. What can I do to satisfy God? And if it has anything to do with your own work, that's folly. God had to give a gift. He had to give it, give to us what we could not earn. And that's a gift, right? If, you mean you don't earn a gift. If you earn a gift, it isn't a gift. It's pay. However, on giving the gift, someone could say, God must not be just. Because it certainly isn't just to give someone a gift when they don't deserve it. So God must not be holy uh, because he's overlooking your sin. Or he must not be righteous because he's tolerating your unrighteousness. He's accepting us as we are. So he must have lowered his standard. And that would be the accusation. But his standard for good is absolute. He made his righteousness very clear. And then, thirdly, as God looks at the cross, he sees his grace put on display. And grace means... Something that was undeserved. It was unwarranted. It was unearned. And he gave it to us, verse 24 says, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And the word redemption is the word ransom. And you recognize that word. It applies when someone is kidnapped. Ransom means to pay the price to buy someone back. In ancient times, it was the word that used to apply to buying the freedom of someone who was a slave. That's the perfect application for us. Because we are slaves, the Bible says, of sin. And we can't be delivered from that position. So God stated that he would give you the gift of being right with him. The gift of righteousness. The gift of forgiveness. The gift of eternal life. But the price would still be paid. And that price was paid, he says, in Christ Jesus. It isn't that God is eccentric or, or strange or unpredictable and he just ignores his righteous requirements or he just randomly pushes his righteousness and holiness aside and just forgets his requirements for justice and just decides to love you for a while, to be tolerant and benevolent or, or merciful for a while if you catch him on a good day. No. You have to ask the question, what can I do to be saved? What can I do to, to get myself in a position where I'm right with God? And the answer is nothing. And you have to understand then the only way you can be right with God is through repentant faith in Christ's work on the cross. Why is that? God is holy. He's righteous. He's justice. And that can never be set aside. And God always operates in such a way that's consistent with his nature. In other words, whenever he does that which is good and gracious and merciful, it'll also be holy and righteous and just. In fact, Isaiah 11.5 says, the belt around his waist is faithfulness and righteousness. Everything that he does is wrapped up, that robe of everything that is his, his uh, attributes is wrapped up in righteousness and faithfulness. Whatever he does is always consistent with his nature. So how does he graciously give you righteousness and ransom? He did it because the price for your gift was paid for by Jesus. In other words, he was so holy and so righteous that some price had to be paid for sin and that price was set and it was death. But he's so loving and he's so gracious and merciful that he gave his own son to pay the price. Justice was satisfied and so was grace, see? And holiness was satisfied and so was love. And righteousness was satisfied and so was mercy and forgiveness, see? Romans 3.25, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Here it is. 
whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. So God displayed Jesus publicly. What's that mean? God put him where everyone could see him. God put him where everyone would notice. And then the next part, made him to be a propitiation. Hilasterion, that's the word propitiation, the word um, for satisfaction. Because remember the accusation, I mean, if you go back and you're just kind of thinking through this, God must not be just because it isn't true justice to give someone a gift when they don't deserve it. God must not be a holy God because he's overlooking your sin. God must not be a righteous God because he's tolerating your unrighteousness. So look back at verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a satisfaction in his blood through faith. This was, mark it, to demonstrate his righteousness. Again, making it clear what his requirements are. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. How could he do that and be just? How could he forbear and be righteous? How could he pass over sins and be holy? The sins of all those generations. How could he stand all of that? Well, it's because someone was going to pay the price. How could he forgive sinners and still be just? Because the price would be paid. His justice and holiness and righteousness would be satisfied. And I guess it might look like people sinned and got away with it. It might look like divine righteousness was on vacation. It might look like that now. As we read the news and we see what our leaders do, just think it's divine righteousness on vacation. What about the wages of sin is death? What about the soul that sins shall surely die? Men sinned and skipped away unharmed. They lived and flourished. Men sinned now and seemed to get away with it. They prosper. And maybe that's what you think you're doing now. You think you're right with God, but you're not. And you haven't answered these questions and you haven't come to faith. But you're like, well, God hasn't judged me. I mean, actually, my life's pretty good. I've lived a pretty nice life. I'm, I'm, I must be born again. Where's the retribution? Behold, all souls are mine, Ezekiel 18, 4 says, the soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son is mine, the soul of whose sins will die. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Where's all that? God just can't be overlooking sin, can he? I mean, he can't just give sin a permanent pass or be complacent about evil. Sin has to be punished. No matter how much God loves the sinner, his justice still must be satisfied. So how can a sinful man become acceptable to a righteous God? Somebody has to pay the price. So God didn't punish the sinner. He punished the son. You get that? That's the substitution, beloved. That's the good news. That's the gospel. God didn't punish the sinner He punished the son. You won't be punished for your sin if you come to him in repentant faith. Why? Because the punishment was carried out on Jesus. He preserves his holiness and his justice and his righteousness. And he gives a place to grace and mercy and love. And the former is carried out on his son and the latter is extended to men. How about that? If someone desired to be right with God and had to suffer their own price, then they would suffer eternally, and even eternity could not pay the price. But God's gracious, and He provided a satisfaction for the price of sin, and He made it public. And mark this, beloved. The life you live without Christ, still in your sin, without any apparent penalty, catch this, is time purchased for you by God's mercy, love, and grace. Did you know that? God's patience, Scripture says, is salvation. What's that mean? That in his forbearance and that he's paid for your sins on the cross of Christ, you get time. You get time to respond correctly. 
You've not always been right with God. You've not always gone to church and everything's good. Listen, if you haven't asked these questions, you haven't come to a saving knowledge of Jesus because this is the issue. And God is gracious and he provided satisfaction for that sin and he made it public. And this time that you're living without him is time purchased for you by God's mercy, love, and grace because Jesus satisfied God's righteousness, holiness, and justice and God made it public and you're aware of it and you don't know when the end will be, see? That God gave you this grace and you have time but you don't know how much time. A little girl on Monday morning on her way to school to LCA, she had her whole life ahead of her. And now she's in eternity. That church with the school, I mean, all those administrators and people came, they, they didn't expect that, did they? But now they're in eternity, aren't they? See, that's time purchased for you because Christ paid the price. Jesus satisfied God's righteousness and holiness and justice. And God made it public and you're aware of it. And should you choose not to receive it in the way God has given it, in repentant faith, answering those questions. I can do nothing to save myself. I have to come and repent and believe. It's a gift not earned by work. And if you go to your grave without doing these things, without coming to faith the way God has described it for you, the way the cross and God's viewpoint looks, then you, when you die, God's judgment will not forbear and you will pay for your own sin in hell which is what you will deserve. Everybody gets what they want. Not everybody likes what they get. And God's so serious about it that Jesus said in Mark 9, 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go to hell into unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter your life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where your their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And here's the thing. It's not that you save yourself by self-immolation. That's not the point of it. The point of it is to tell you how bad sin is. That there isn't anything you can do to solve that problem. And even should you cut off those limbs, you're still not going to make your way to heaven. That's still not satisfying God's righteousness. Jesus wanted to make sure, though, that they understood. You pass into hell unredeemed, that's never going to stop. That's a torment that will never end, see? And again, Jesus, Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And Peter told the church in Second Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to do both. And as we prepare to close, we're out of time. Understand, Jesus became sin who knew no sin died in our place. He's our substitute. Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer and be killed. He knew why he was there. He understood what was going to happen. He understood he was going to bear the sin that he didn't know so we could have the righteousness that we didn't earn. There's no human achievement you can do to satisfy God as we saw from Psalm 49. No man can by any means redeem his brother. You can't save someone else by what you do and you can't give God a ransom for yourself. The soul is costly. He should cease trying forever. The price is higher than any human being can pay but it was satisfied in Christ.
No sinner can redeem himself, let alone atone for the sins of someone else. So Christ, the perfect one, paid the price of divine justice and bore the sins of the whole world in an act of divine grace and divine justice. And listen to this, beloved, because the day is long. In Mark 1.15, Jesus came and he said this. In Jesus' day, he says this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Beloved, the kingdom is here. 2,000 years of grace, 2,000 years of time purchased by Jesus on the cross. The kingdom is here. Time to repent and believe. Time. Don't miss this. Audrey Hale missed it. Many went to their graves today. Missed it. This is the main message. This is the most important thing. No one in the church should be missing this. And then we go out from here and make sure no one in the community misses it. Everybody has that circle of influence and you go out and carry the Great Commission. But you've got to have something to say besides I've always been a Christian, my parents were Christians and I've been in church all my life. That is not a testimony and that's not indicative of saving faith, okay? And next week we're going to look at some of those things that people say are indicative of saving faith and whether those are biblical or not. And then we'll give you a list of things that are. Don't miss the message. Don't enter eternity having chosen not to receive this gift as it's been given. The forbearance you've received up until this very moment, living the life you live without Christ, still in your sin, without any apparent penalty, beloved, has been time purchased for you. And maybe all the way up to now, you thought you were saved, and now you understand the message of the gospel is not one that you've believed. And maybe you didn't hear it right, correctly before. Maybe nobody gave it to you. I get it. You've got it now, though. And God made it apparent. Now it's in front of you. Clearly, you have to be able to say these kinds of things. Jesus satisfied God's righteousness, His holiness, and justice, and God made it public, and you're aware of it. And, and I just want to talk to those who, who have received that gift. You've come to faith in Christ. You know, I think it's just as important to talk to you in Romans 13, 11. Here's Paul talking to the church who's come to faith. Know the time. Know the time. It's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. What's the implication? Many who are born again are what? Asleep. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Didn't we just say that? Jesus said, the time is at hand. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe. Now it's much longer, isn't it? And we look at what's going on in the world, and if you know anything about the Bible at all, you understand we're moving rapidly towards a point in history in the future where the Lord is going to come back and catch His church away. That can't be very far away. More and more violent culture, more and more disregard for life, more and more of these things, wicked things being passed on, things being coming hostile to Christianity, Israel, and all that's going on there. Listen, you should be aware. This is important stuff. You know when the fig trees in, in blossom, the figs are not far away, and, it, and we should be able to see this. The night is far spent, and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, Paul says to the church, and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing, not in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, not in sensuality, not in strife, not in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Because the Word of God, we know these are the things that God sees when He sees the cross, beloved. And we're going to look at more of that next week and kind of wrap that up. The, the Lord, and Lord willing, We'll do that, and, and 
Invite a friend, beloved. Invite them. They're going to get the gospel message. Maybe you've witnessed to them already. They're going to get a clear presentation of the gospel. Let's pray and uh, give our time to the Lord. Lord, we thank you today for opportunity to be in your word. We're grateful for how clear it is. We thank you for the message. We thank you for the cross as you see it. We're so subjective sometimes in how we understand the cross and what we say about it and where we put it and what we do with it. But we understand here clearly your righteousness was put on display and the standard of goodness was not relative. And you gave us a gift and bought us time to repent and believe. The kingdom is here. It's been here. How long is the Lord going to be able to wait for you? So today the message goes out to those who sit here those who watch, are you redeemed? What's your testimony? How can you be made right with God? If you say anything else besides, I cling to the cross of Jesus Christ who paid for my sin only. That's my only hope. I have no good thing inside of me except what Christ has put there. Forgiveness purchased for me on Calvary where all my sins were paid for, that's how I could be made right with God because I can't do any of that. Confess with your mouth, Romans 10 says, that Jesus is Lord. That means he's the boss. Can you do that? Have you done that? Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, and you shall be saved. How do we get saved? Confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. That he is who he said he is. He's done what he said he did, and everything he said about us is true. When you confess somebody is Lord, they're the boss. And everything that they say is what you have to do. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. He died on your behalf, taking your penalty on the cross. And by repentant faith, you can receive the payment applied to you and become a child of the Lord. What a joy that would be today to do it. And if you desire to do that, if you did it right where we sat, it'd be, that's the reason why we're here. It's why we preach the message. Let us know before you go. Let us know that you came to faith. It'd be our joy to help disciple you, put, pair you up with someone, help you grow in the, in the word, grow in your faith. doesn't matter whether you've only gone to church. doesn't matter what people might think of you. All that matters is what you've done with Jesus. That's all the people who, were, who died this week, that's all they would say if they could come back and talk to you. It was just that. And so, Father, I pray uh, that it would be those kinds of folks that we will understand these things, make, uh, give up our life and find it, lose our life to save it, to follow you no matter what, Thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you for the example that he was. Thank you for the message that can go out so clearly and appropriately in Palm Sunday and, and Resurrection Sunday. And we give you praise, Lord. Help us to grow now that we understand these, these starting points. Help us to grow in maturity and obedience. That's how we express our love to you, obedience. Pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake and all God's people said, amen.